0: book of Daniel opens with a story of suffering, a story of suffering, and to press home the question I asked earlier, what would you say if you were confronted by the you know, Louisiana or Haitians or Syrians from Aleppo or, or if you were like Daniel? I'm forcibly and violently exiled into a foreign land. I want you to think about what you would say. You know, I'll tell you what, what many people would say. They would say that God can't be real. And that if he is, he's a monster. You know, a couple years ago, I was, I was sitting on a, a plane next to an older gentleman and I, I asked him if he believed in god and he said i'll believe in god if you can explain a, a certain date in april to me i said well, well sir if you don't mind me asking what what happened and he said well that's when my daughter died I wonder if you've, if you've been there, friend. I wonder if you've been in a situation or lived through a moment where because of the suffering that was going on, not only did you have little to no desire to relate to God, but it became exceedingly difficult to even believe that he could be real. Well, that's, that's the kind of situation I'm convinced is confronting daniel and his three jewish friends in daniel one all right and i and i think especially for those of us who have heard some of these stories from childhood we get in trouble because we skip over the setup we rush through the first couple verses but we shouldn't do that we shouldn't do that all right so here's this here's the setting jerusalem is under attack. That's Daniel's hometown. Okay, The king of Judah is forced to surrender, and Nebuchadnezzar seizes some of the, the up-and-coming young people of the royal family and the nobility as trophies of war and brings them to Babylon. Okay? So they're, they're taken from their families, they're taken from their homeland, they're stripped of everything familiar, and they're exiled. And in the midst of their suffering something remarkable happens all right they don't stop following the lord they don't stop that is not what people naturally do (laughs) it's not what what do we normally or naturally do when we're suffering well we we lash out in anger you know, or we retreat into depression. We, we toss God out the window. We conclude things like, how can God be real when there's so much suffering in the world? If you've heard that, maybe you've asked that. Well, Daniel and his friends didn't respond that way to their suffering. Why not? Why not? Well, I think it's because they believed that at every point in their life, two things were true. God was in control, and God was worthy of their allegiance. At every point in these guys' lives, in the midst of crazy suffering, okay, let's not downplay that, there were two things they believed. One, God is in control. Two, God is worthy of my allegiance. And last Sunday, I, we launched a, a four-month sermon series from the book of Daniel called Dominion. Dominion. And there's a theme in this first chapter that Daniel establishes here that he's going to keep coming back to again and again and again, and I already gave it to you, all right? What's the theme? God's in control, and God is worthy of our allegiance. He's just going to keep coming back to that and back to that. That, That's what Daniel had to know. That's what the exiles he's writing to here needed to know. That's what we need to know. At every point in our life, God is in control and is worthy of our allegiance, all right? And if if you find yourself thinking, well, how do I get from the land of anger and despair in the face of suffering to this place of God's in control and I'm going to follow him? Good question. Because oftentimes, that's a great big gap. Well, here's the good news, all right? Daniel 1, as it were, takes us by the hand and leads us there. Okay, because in this chapter, God gives us an explanation. He shows us why we have better reasons for trusting and obeying God than we do for doubting and ignoring him. All right, and I'm going to go through three of them. Okay, three of them. But think of these as three reasons why we can know that God's in control and is worthy of our allegiance. All right, so here's the first. Here's the first. The sovereign rule of God enables our trust. It enables our trust. I I mentioned this verse last Sunday, but I want you to look again at Daniel 1, verse 2. All right? Because this is one of the most important verses in the entire chapter, if not the entire book of Daniel. Verse 2, And the Lord gave. Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. Please notice, Daniel does not say, and the Lord allowed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, to fall into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Or the Lord, from his perch in heaven, noticed that King Jehoiakim happened to fall into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, what what does he say? The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Now, if you're reading your Bible and you know Nebuchadnezzar, at this point in the story, you should be thinking, what in the world is God doing? Why would he do that? Nebuchadnezzar's not a nice guy. He's not a nice guy. He's powerful, he's arrogant, and he's ruthless. Why would the God of Israel give the people of Israel into the hand of a man like that? Well, answering that question, church, requires doing a little bit of background Okay, a little bit of background, so track with me here. God has always related to his people in covenantal terms. Covenantal terms. By that I mean that the God of the Bible doesn't just exist. He does exist, but he exists in relationship to us. Now, when I say that, I it's important to recognize that that we all have all sorts of different kinds of of relationships with all sorts of people, you know, so I have a certain kind of relationship with my wife, a certain kind of relationship with my kids, I have a certain kind of relationship with the dog next door that I would rather not talk about. You know, we, we, we all have certain kinds of relationships, and so when I say that God doesn't just exist, but he exists in relationship with man, that begs the question, right, what kind of relationship? Well, the answer from the beginning of the Bible is a covenantal sort of relationship, okay? A covenant, the words of Gentry and Wellam, is a relationship involving an oath-bound commitment. What's that mean? Well, that means that from the very beginning, human beings have existed in a relationship to God, with God, defined by oath-bound commitments. Okay, in other words, promises made by one or both parties where there are blessings for keeping the promises and curses for breaking the promises. Okay, we see that in God's relationship with, with Adam, we see it in his relationship with Noah, we see it in his relationship with Abraham, and then, and then really clearly we see it in his relationship with the nation of Israel. This covenant consisting of promises made by both parties where there's, there's blessings for keeping the promises and curses for breaking them. So, so we read in Exodus 19, the Lord says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. He's talking to Israel here. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a, a holy nation. Then he says to Moses, These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Here's what's up. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And notice this all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. The promise. Commitment. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. What's going on with that? Well, God's mighty acts of deliverance in rescuing Israel from slavery in Egypt made a claim on her life. All right? A claim on her life such that now what was true by virtue of creation is now doubly true by virtue of redemption, namely, Israel must obey the Lord. Israel must obey the Lord. God, God doesn't just do cool things for Israel and then cut her loose to do whatever she feels like doing. He doesn't do that. He makes a covenant with her. He enters into relationship with her involving oath-bound commitments. Okay? He promises to bless Israel and Israel promises to obey God. That's the relationship. And in Deuteronomy 28, the Lord fills out the terms of this covenant in, in great detail. He, he contrasts the blessings for keeping the covenant with the curses for breaking it. So we read in, in 28.1, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, be careful to do all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all of these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, chase you down, if you obey the voice of the Lord our God. Verse 18. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Then in verse 36, the Lord will bring you and your king whom you have set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods, of wood and stone, and you shall become a whore, a proverb, a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. What's he saying there? What he's saying, and no uncertain terms to Israel, listen, if you break your promise to me, if you don't keep your oath-bound commitment to me, then there's a consequence for that. You're going to be sent into exile. And I'm going to do it. So, so God makes this covenant with Israel. And then what happens? Judges chapter 2. One generation... Broken. I mean, they didn't even hardly get through one generation. One generation later, she abandons the Lord and begins serving pagan idols. So, what do we expect to have happen next in the storyline? Boom! Exile! Is that what happens? No. No, why not? Well, because God is a God, Exodus 34, who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. What does He do? He warns. He warns. He says, hello, Israel. He sends prophet after prophet for hundreds of years, by the way. I mean, I, I have trouble being patient for like 30 minutes with my kids. I mean, God, God, hundreds of years. Warning, warning, Israel, Israel. If you don't turn from your wicked ways, all the covenant curses are going to come crashing down on your head. 2 Chronicles 36, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Church, why did the Lord God give Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and his people into the hand of of an exceedingly wicked man. Well, he did it because that is precisely what he promised to do centuries earlier. He kept his word. He was faithful. It wasn't wasn't capricious. It wasn't flying off the handle it wasn't punishment on a whim it was the covenant curse israel invoked on herself when she failed to do what she promised to do remember not just once but over and over and over again so so on one level that story and and the exile is tremendously sad it's sad but on another level friend it's incredibly reassuring. You might not have expected those words to come out of my mouth. Why The exile? It's incredibly reassuring? Well, well, I think it is. Why? Because it reminds us that God is faithful. And that he always keeps his promises. Even in judgment. Always. You know, the, the Israelites felt like their life was spinning out of control in an endless nightmare. Daniel, writing this book, recognized a deeper reality. He he recognized, he recognized that it's not Nebuchadnezzar's sin that's calling the shots here. It's not even my forefathers' sin that's calling the shots here. It's not even my own sin that's calling the shots here. God is calling the shots here. And he is in complete control of this entire situation and therefore he is worthy of my supreme allegiance. He sees the world that way, okay? Well, well maybe you're suffering right now because of somebody else's sin against you. Maybe you're suffering right now because of your own sin. Maybe you're suffering right now because we live in a broken, fallen world. Okay, well, regardless of the details, friend, please hear this. It's not their sin, your sin, or the world's sin that's controlling the circumstances of your life. It's God. It's God, and in the mystery of his will, he has brought your suffering to pass. Okay? Now, does God actively do what is evil? No. But does he use our suffering? And more importantly, does he govern our suffering in such a way that it always accomplishes his divine purpose for our lives? Yes. Yes. Okay? So what should that do for us? What's point one? It enables our trust. It enables our trust because you'll never encounter a single situation in your entire life where your God is not in complete control. Never, all right? In your darkest hour, please hear this, your world is never controlled by your sin, other people's sin, or the world's collective sin. It is controlled by God. It always has been. (laughs) It always will be, okay? So when you're in exile... In summary, it's easy to succumb to fear, but take heart. The sovereign rule of God enables our trust. Enables our trust, all right? Here's point two. It enables our trust, the sovereign rule of God. Point two, it also empowers our obedience. Enables our trust and empowers our obedience, all right? So so I think in this narrative at the beginning, the first seven verses, Daniel moves so quickly through what's happening here that, that it's easy to miss The pressure they were under. All right? So so what's going on here in the first seven verses? Well, essentially, King Nebuchadnezzar is trying to reprogram Daniel and his friends. How's he doing that? Well, first he orders, let's teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Re-education. Okay? Let's assign to them a daily portion of my own food and wine. Let's make them eat what I eat. Right? And then, to cap it all off, let's have one of the servants give them new names that, by the way, are derived from the primary gods of Babylon. Let's take away their God identity, their Hebrew names, and let's give them a pagan identity so that every time we call them, they are reminded, you're not his, you're mine. Well, the goal is simply, as I see it, to remake these guys in nebuchadnezzar's image that's what he's after okay he's trying to force them to exchange their god-given identity for a new identity as officials in babylon all right but daniel recognizes what's going on so he resolves verse 8 that i'm not going to defile myself with the king's food or wine now we read that or we hear that i've read that this week and and from our perspective it can just seem if i can be honest a little ridiculous (laughs) I mean, Daniel, okay? Dude, the least of your worries is what you're putting in your mouth, okay? I mean, if we're going to start with, like, greatest threats in exile, maybe it might have something to do with a three-year education in polytheistic literature filled with magic, sorcery, and astrology, okay? Maybe that would affect you more. Well, well, well Daniel, he doesn't give us the exact reason why, he refused the king's food and wine. But I think the best explanation, I want to be careful here, is that in ancient Near East cultures, to, to share a meal with someone, right, to, to eat their food, to drink their wine, that was an expression of fellowship, okay? An expression of loyalty. It, it was a step toward covenant relationship with the person you were eating with, all right? In other words, it's not the food and the wine that are a big deal. It's the fact that eating the food and drinking the wine would have been a loud statement of loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar. That's the issue. And and I think we see this in verse 10, in the chief eunuch's response when Daniel asked to not do that. What's, What's the guy say? I fear my lord, the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the user of your own age? So you, Daniel, would endanger my head with the king. (laughs) Translation. Daniel, if you say no to King Nebuchadnezzar, one of us is going to get killed. Killed for a food preference? Oh, Daniel, you don't get it. To say no to him, even with food and wine, is to commit treason. That's the problem. You don't challenge Nebuchadnezzar's authority and live very long to tell about it. We're going to see that in chapter 3. It doesn't go well. (laughs) Okay, so, but I, I just want us to stop and consider for a minute, church, why it would have been so tempting, so easy, for Daniel and his friends to just exchange a little bit of their loyalty to Yahweh for a little bit of loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar and eat and drink. Okay, why, why would that have been tempting, Alright, l- Listen, well, first, it was an honor. It was an honor, all right? Eating the king's food and drinking his wine was a privilege reserved for the Babylonian elite. If you are in exile, you have no rights whatsoever. You think that eating and drinking with the who's who list in the capital city might be a step upward. It was an honor, okay? Tempting. Second, it was desirable. Daniel has been in a city under siege. What do you not have in a city under siege? Rich food and wine. First thing that goes, <laughs> all right, and as the finest fare in the wealthiest empire on the planet, that food and wine must have smelled amazing and looked incredibly good, okay? So it's honorable, it's, it's, it's desirable. Third, I, I think it would have been really easy to rationalize, easy to rationalize, you know? It's not like I'm totally giving in to the Babylonians. I mean, hello, I'm still praying three times a day, Okay? God knows that. And besides, I mean, let's just be honest. If God really wanted me to remain loyal to him, well, then He, what was he doing when I got sent to exile for their sin? If he's going to treat me that way, I'm not not following him. He's got to hold up his in the bargain, and then I'll do mine. Easy to rationalize. Okay? Lastly, it would have been socially expected. All right? If the king offers you his food and drink, normal, human, Babylonian people, hello, Daniel and company, they eat it, they drink it, and they don't ask questions. It's not just food and drink, friends. It's honorable, desirable, easy to rationalize, socially expected. I would argue that every day of our life, we are tempted in the exact same way. Exact same way. If you're an exile in this world, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, by virtue of your faith in Christ, then not a day goes by where sin doesn't appear honorable, desirable, easy to rationalize, and socially expected of you. Remaining faithful to God in Daniel's world, in our world, requires persistent resolve in the face of that kind of temptation. Persistent resolve. What, what, what happened to Daniel the first time that he tried to get permission to not compromise his convictions? The first time, what happened? Well, he didn't make a lot of headway. Right? And, and, and I think, you know, there's a parallel here in our own life how often have I resisted a temptation you know for like 0.894 seconds or something and I think well God I tried I mean I tried I I I resisted it I refused to compromise and like look you know it didn't work out so um, you know I'm just going to kind of go with this but but if you ever want to provide a opportunity way of escape you know that stuff mom and dad talk about well well I'll try again That's not persistent resolve. That's compromise. Daniel shows us what persistent resolve looks like, and and verse 9 tells us why he persisted, okay? Verse 9, look at verse 9. And God gave, there's that word again, Daniel, favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs, okay? So the chief of the eunuchs, he didn't shut Daniel down. He didn't outright deny his request. He simply explained in no uncertain terms, in rather personal terms, why he couldn't do what Daniel wanted him to do. And Daniel recognized in that, the fact he didn't get a flat-out no, that God was being kind to him. And he took that as an encouragement to keep trying, so much so that he was willing to propose this 10-day this experiment to prove to the other official that God was really worthy of his allegiance. And he passed that test with flying colors. So what does that prove? Well, it proves, friend, that the Apostle Paul wasn't kidding when he said this. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That you may be able to endure it. He is sovereignly using His authority and control to provide ways of escape for you this week. He's doing that. And there's an an inseparable relationship here. Please see this. Between trusting God and obeying God. They're connected, okay? Listen, if the universe isn't governed by a God... Who sovereignly controls all things and, and who through his sovereign power guarantees a day when all of us are going to be held to account for the way that we live, then I would argue it really doesn't matter how we live if that's not true, okay? But if we all live under the sovereign rule of God and if he not only holds us accountable for our, our obedience but also provides a way for us to obey Him in every situation, then guess what? All right, We have every reason in the world to obey that kind of God. Every reason. But if you don't believe God is sovereign, obedience will seem pointless. Like, why? And if you don't believe God's sovereign, obedience will seem impossible. I'll never be able to. But if you believe as God says and Daniel did that, that the God of heaven sovereignly rules all things and that, that on our good days and on our bad days he's not just in control but he's providing, as it were, ways of escape for us to resist the temptation to exchange our loyalty to him for loyalty to the world. If you believe that, then suddenly obedience isn't just essential, but it's possible. It's possible, Okay. When you're in exile, it's easy to compromise your true identity. But take heart, friend. All right? The sovereign rule of God empowers your obedience. It enables it. Okay? Point number three. Sovereign rule of God ensures our reward. All right? First point. Sovereign rule of God enables our trust. Second, it empowers our obedience. Third, it ensures our reward, okay? I wonder if you realize that the God of the universe is ridiculously eager to bless you. I wonder if you realize that. I wonder if you even think of God that way. He never just says, obey me or else. He doesn't. He says, you must obey me And when you do, I stand ready, eager, and willing to lavish blessing on your life. That's what he says. He he knows obedience is difficult. He knows life in exile is difficult. And So what does he do? He motivates us. He strengthens our weary hearts and minds by promising, I've got a reward for you. (laughs) I've got a reward for you. And I think there there are a couple ways that, that the sovereign rule of God Ensures a reward for obedience in Daniel 1. Okay, a couple ways here. All right. First, we see that God rules the world in a way that blessings for obedience are not trumped by the consequences of disobedience. Okay, say that again. God rules the world in such a way that blessings for obedience are not trumped, ace of spades, not trumped by consequences for disobedience. I, I think we have this idea as Christians that we're either being disciplined by God or we're being blessed by God. And there's a great big wall between the two things and the sooner that we can get done with this season of discipline, the sooner we can get onto this season of blessing. We, we think like that. But the trouble with that way of thinking is that it fails to recognize that in the kingdom of God, the smallest act of obedience never goes unrewarded. Never. The the whole reason Daniel's in exile is because the Israelites had been rebelling against God for generations. And the end of exile, the end of their discipline, their consequences, when Daniel's writing this, is like 70 years away. Okay? That's the context. And yet, right in the middle of that, God still notices Daniel's obedience, and he rewards Daniel's obedience. Friend, what does that mean? That means even when you are suffering because of sin and its consequences, if you choose today to obey the Lord He not only sees that, he is eager, ready, and able, and promising to reward you. Today, even when the consequences of your sin, or other people's sin, or the world's sin, are still pressing around you, in that setting, God sees your obedience and is eager to reward you. He's eager to do that. And and I think this principle is especially important in marriage. All right, what do I mean by that? Well, I'm talking about a marriage where a couple, hypothetically speaking, (laughs) may find themselves reaping the consequences of 15 or 20 years of sinful patterns in their relationship. Are those consequences going to go away quickly? We can, you can join me. No, (laughs) they're not. Okay? Okay they don't but but you know what they're not going to go away quickly but that doesn't change the fact that if today today maybe for the first time you choose in maybe the smallest way to love your spouse that god is going to reward you for that god is going to reward you for that no act of obedience goes unrewarded in the kingdom of god even while we are suffering because of sin. No act. All right? Blessings for obedience aren't trumped by the consequences of disobedience. That's the first way that the sovereign rule of God ensures a reward for us. All right, here's the second. God rules the world in such a way that effective witness is always the reward of radical obedience. Effective witness is the reward of radical obedience. Well, what happened when Daniel and his friends refused to compromise? What happened? Well, God rewarded them with a position of significant cultural influence. Very significant. They were invited to stand before the king, serving as high-level administrators, counselors in his kingdom. And, you know, I think we often think of choosing to obey God as something that's going to lead to isolation and persecution. Well, in many cases it does. You know what else we should be ready for God to do? We should be ready for God to reward radical obedience by giving us a new opportunity for effective witness that we may have never had otherwise. Okay? So, so what does that mean? Well, that means that God will never ask you to choose, please hear this, between following him and being a godly influence on other people. you won't. And if you ever hit a decision where it feels like those are your two options, either you choose to honor God or you choose to be relatable and loving to the people around you, then there should be alarm bells going off on your head that you are buying into a lie of the devil. All right? And, and I think it goes like this. You know, when you're with your church friends, it's, o- it's, it's okay to be really godly. Good to be really godly. But, but when you're out in the world, in the, in the break room or in the, or in the dugout, you know, just, just dial it back a bit, all right? Okay, just, just dial it back a little bit. And make sure you're not so holy that, that people can't relate to you and you lose your position of influence in their life. So, so you know, if, if you need to cuss a little, if you need <clears> to <throat> drink a little, you know, whatever it takes, just just show that you're not, you're not a Pharisee. You know, you're, you're cool. We'll do it because God loves people and, and you want to you have that position of influence. That's what it's all about. <sighs> well, friend, that's a lie. That's a lie. If you are compromising your convictions or hiding your convictions when you're around people who don't share your convictions, then you're not fearing God. You're fearing man. And your supposed influence is proclaiming a false gospel. Namely, that godliness is nothing more than a tidied up version of worldliness. That is not true. Jesus didn't die for you so you could be cool. Jesus died for you so you could be holy. So you could show the world. Remember I said, what is God? What's the church about? God wants to be able to point and say, "Look, that's what it means to be my people." He died for you so you could be holy, so when people look at you, they don't think, there's a cool guy. they think, "Look who God is like." Look who God is like. Remember, friend, He rules the world in such a way that radical obedience is what leads to effective witness. OK? Here's the final way God's sovereign rule ensures our reward, all right? He rules the world in such a way that the best rewards are yet to come. What do I mean by that? What's that have to do with Daniel? Well, well here's what I'm talking about, okay? Well, if I'm Daniel, trust me, there is something I want even more than standing before the king. Do you know what it is? What he dared not say and he probably had to put a happy face on, so nobody would ask, I want to go home. (laughs) I mean, standing before the king's great and all, but I want to go home. (laughs) I want God to bring me back from exile and into the promised land. Friend, the fact that at the end of Daniel 1, even after he's obeyed the lord he's still in exile screams something it screams that god often asks us to wait for the reward of obedience oh i don't like that i want god to work like a slot machine you know insert obedience boom, rewards, balloons, confetti, awesome. You know, I just, that's what I want. I, I don't want God to obey me. Okay, I'll obey you, Lord. All right, now wait. Wait. I think this is where the perspective of Hebrews 11 is so helpful, okay? Speaking of the saints of old, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. These all died in but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Are we not? For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a home. We want that god we want that if they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out they would have had opportunity to return no kidding but as it is they desire a better country that is a heavenly one therefore god is not ashamed to be called their god for he has prepared for them a city friend when you're in exile it is so easy to grow weary okay but take heart take heart. The sovereign rule of God, it ensures your reward. It ensures your reward in a way that that never lets the consequences of disobedience trump the blessings of obedience. It ensures your reward in such a way that, that you'll never have an effective witness if you're not radically obeying. It ensures your reward in such a way that oftentimes, though you have to wait, you know it's coming. You know it's coming. So, how can we really be sure? Preacher man Williams seemed often excited about God being in control. God empowering obedience and God promising reward. How can we be sure? How do we know that there's an eternal reward waiting for all who choose to follow God in this life? Well, it's not because of Daniel. Daniel. Though his example is a gift to provoke us, we know it because of another man who, like Daniel, went into exile in a foreign land. Except, unlike Daniel, his exile was voluntary. And unlike all of us, his obedience was perfect. Hebrews 5. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Church, please hear this. Hope for the future doesn't lie in your ability to be a Daniel. All right? Because we're inevitably going to fail. Hope for the future lies in Jesus Christ, who entered our world, entered our exile, took on our sorrows, and won for the go- through the gospel a reward of eternal life. That he promises to give those who cry out to him for salvation. At every point in our life, God is in control and God is worthy of supreme allegiance. And that allegiance begins and ends with the obedience of faith. This choice we make to cast the weight of our life, all our sins, all our weaknesses, all our fears and struggles on Jesus who delivers us. Daniel obeyed God because he trusted God. On this side of the cross, trusting God means trusting Christ. So I urge you, friend, trust him right now. Okay, don't hope in your ability to be a Daniel. Hope in Christ. And with your hope fixed firmly on him, then go and show the world like Daniel did. Here's what my God is like. Oh Lord, we are grateful you have said a good word to us today. A good word of your sovereign control. And the claim it makes, the power it brings, the hope it offers. Lord, help us now to cling to Christ. To learn from Daniel, to be provoked by his example. Not to hope in us, to hope in you. And with our hope in you, to show the entire watching world what you're like. Lord, thank you for the sacraments that help us do that. To remember, not lose sight of our true identity. I pray as we share communion now, and Chris leads us in that, that that you would root and fix our identity in you. And that in that place, we really could join Daniel. Through our trust, through our obedience, show the world what you're like. Amen.